I don't know if you've ever tried to wrangle a large group of children at any time to do one thing all at once. If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about and you probably already appreciate teachers. If you haven't, well, just know that herding cats is a pretty apt description. But now, I would like you to imagine doing all that on Zoom or some other virtual platform. Whoa, what? <laughs> I think she's hard. <laughs> What's happening? She was the host and she left accidentally and the meeting's still going. Now, remember, now how many hydrogens do I have? Well, that was really unnecessary. Some virtual schooling clips have made the internet rounds because they were funny or they were charming or exasperating or cute to watch for like 15, 20 seconds or so, but to live with as your job for hours and hours every day. No, you would lose your patience very quickly. And after months of that, look, you'd be burnt out. And if you were lucky, you might be healthy and young enough to risk going back to schools and trying to teach in person. And you would do that only for the schools to be moved right back online as COVID numbers climb. So what is it really like being a teacher in the time of COVID-19 in both virtual and physical classrooms? How have teachers adapted? What have they attempted to do to connect with their students online or in person? How hard has it been? And how close are some of them to walking away entirely? And what happens to our education system if they do? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Inori Roy is a freelance investigative journalist who completed a fellowship with The Local this past fall, where she looked into teacher burnout. Hello, Inori. Hi, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your your reporting with us. Why don't we start? Um, because there are a lot of teachers in your story, and, and I'm not going to mm-hmm. ask you to speak for, for all teachers, but I am going to get you to tell me some of their stories. So maybe start with uh, Melissa Radomsky. Who is she, and, and what was she going through when you spoke to her? Yeah, so um, Melissa has a really sort of poignant story to share. So she is a person who's currently uh, experiencing a pre-cancer diagnosis, and she's a teacher who's been working at an inner city school in Toronto um, for decades now. And uh, what she told me uh, when I spoke to her was that she actually had a really hard time deciding whether to do virtual learning or to do in-person learning with her students uh, when COVID began because, you know, the added sort of health risks for her and the the vulnerability of her health condition meant that going into in-person learning would present risks that were unique to her that some other teachers wouldn't be facing. But at the same time, the mental and uh, emotional stresses of doing virtual learning and the uncertainties uh, that so many teachers have, so many teachers have expressed with regards to the sort of last minute uh, organizational rollouts of virtual learning left her feeling like the emotional and mental stresses would be even more of a risk to her health and well-being than the physical stresses and the physical risks of going into a schooling environment. And so she chose to do in-person schooling. Um, 
and has, you know, has experienced sort of the, the, the rewarding side of in-person schooling in the sense that she gets to be with her students every day. But at the same time, there are limitations in the classroom that leave her, you know, definitely experiencing a greater amount of, of stress and, and a greater sense of, you know, wishing that she could be outside of this environment and take some time for herself than she's ever really felt before. In a second, I'm going to get you to kind of rewind to the initial closure of schools and what that did to teachers and how they handled it. But first, I guess, you know, my question is, as somebody who knows some teachers in my life, and you spoke to a lot of them, just how are they doing? It's been really, really difficult. Uh, I definitely don't want to speak on behalf of all teachers or even, you know, necessarily on behalf of the teachers I spoke to. But there's a sense that all of the joy and all of the rewarding parts of the job that you can get out of being a teacher, those have been stripped away by the pandemic, whether it be getting to have those in-person experiences with your students or getting to experience that collective environment of a classroom and a school, those have been taken away. And instead, what you've been left with is the most difficult and the the least engaging part of, of teaching, which is just the sort of rote learning, the lecturing, the doing Zoom meetings that sort of are unidirectional. Um, and so teachers have had a really hard time of it. I know that everyone's had a really hard time of it. And, you know, a lot of the comments that came out of the, the walrus reprint of the article as well, people were, there was a lot of arguing going on in the comments about whether, you know, teachers have had it any worse than anyone else. And I don't think any of them would presume they've had it worse than anyone else. But I think there is definitely a sense of the the thing that teachers go into teaching for that's been taken away from them and so the joy has slowly been sucked out of the profession well and it's a it's a pretty good point that you know everybody has had to make adjustments and nobody has had it easy these Mm -hmm. past 10 months but what caught my attention about the story um is just the fact that that these are the people that we put in charge of developing our children. And if they can't find joy in that profession or, you know, reason to be dedicated to it, we have a problem, not just for them, but for the kids as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, one of the, one of the people I spoke to, Julius, they mentioned, they, they put it really well. They said that it's sort of like I'm walking off a cliff and instead of just walking off a cliff alone, I'm taking like more than a hundred kids with me. Um, Because also the best teachers, the ones that are most engaged with their profession, the ones who want to do the best job are also going to be the ones who are the most burnt out because they hold themselves to incredibly high standards. They not only have a sort of learning educational connection with their students, they also have emotional connections with their students. And so, you know, the the sort of reciprocal environment that teachers and students create together where they're feeding off of each other, both of them are experiencing these incredible stressors that are impacting the other. And so when a student suffers, a teacher suffers and vice versa. Why don't we go back to the very beginning of this? Um, It's March break, I think, in in most places in Canada uh, when the initial lockdowns are put in place. Mm -hmm. What was it like for those teachers to, you know, have just a couple of weeks to prepare to teach virtually? Um, what was their level of experience with that and, and level of preparation for it? And just, you know, how did it go? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that uh, one of the people I spoke to, Behan Farhadi, who has done her PhD work in virtual learning as well, one of the things that she pointed out to me was that the the way that a teacher goes into virtual learning has a lot to do with how they integrate technology into their classroom even before the pandemic started. And so for teachers who are a little bit more experienced with um, both 
uh, Google Classrooms and the Brightspace uh, learning uh, platform that Ontario um, has rolled out, uh, they were a little bit more comfortable with the process, even though it's still obviously very difficult to suddenly go from in-person to virtual learning. But for the teachers who, you know, were, for example, teaching subjects that didn't necessarily rely on technology that heavily, or who were just less experienced with it, which is understandable because teachers come to the table with lots of different uh, forms of experience. Um, for those teachers, it was it was a lot harder as well. And across the board, what I've heard is that it was just the rollout was so disorganized because of, you know, because of how late in the game it was announced that they would go virtual and the lack of training and the lack of uniformity. There were also um, disagreements in terms of the platforms that should be used. Um, initially, a lot of teachers had been using uh, Google Classrooms and then I believe had to switch over to Brightspace. Um, and there was this sense that Nobody had really established best practice or ground rules. Every teacher just sort of ha sort of had to come at it with what they understood of it and what instruction they might be getting either from the, you know their own school or whether there was any limited instruction coming from uh, the the province or the boards. Um, and of course, a lot of them you know clarified that it wasn't necessarily the board's fault because all these instructions were coming down from the province itself, but the way that instruction was being given out and the, the the slowness at which the decisions were being made and the last minute nature of those decisions left people sort of in the dark for so long that when the time came to prepare and to switch to virtual learning, nobody really knew what to do and what would work best. Virtual learning has been something uh, on the provincial agenda since before there was a pandemic. So I guess my next question is, I, first of all, why weren't they perhaps more prepared, but even forgetting about that, maybe. What have we learned uh, about virtual education in the last eight or nine months by sheer necessity? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, um, virtual learning was introduced uh, as, as I believe it was the mandatory uh, courses uh, were introduced before the pandemic was, you know, even a, a spot on the horizon. And I think there was there's been resistance to it for a while um, because of the the nature of the the way in which it was rolled out the way in which it was proposed by the government and so they of course rolled back their initial um, suggestion of I believe it was four mandatory classes I believe they rolled it back to two um, and so yeah and so the I think part of the reason that the teachers didn't necessarily have advanced knowledge of the of the system is because. Um, as far as I understand it, what I've been led to understand is that not all of the teachers um, who you know are part of the system do the virtual teaching uh, of those two mandatory courses, and so not all the teachers would have had experience with virtual teaching. Um, and also, on top of that, there's a sense that you know, as I mentioned earlier different teachers used different platforms and they used them in different ways. And there was no sort of broad scale uh, training or implementation. Uh, again, going back to something that Behan said to me, um, I think one of the most important things that teachers have learned about virtual learning is that you can't have virtual learning be a replication of in-person learning. Uh, I think that's the biggest problem that at least that I've heard people talk about with regards to the way that it's being implemented right now is that 
the pro- the province is suggesting that virtual learning can be used to replicate in-person learning. So basically, so there's a there's asynchronous learning and there's synchronous learning. Synchronous learning is when everyone is sort of logging onto a Zoom classroom and then the teacher teaches and it's live. Versus asynchronous learning is, as I understand it, um, being given you know tools and resources uh, to work on independently on your own time as a student and then going back and doing uh, some form of in-person learning. As a shorter at a shorter amount of time, so that you're not essentially just on your computer for 300 minutes a day, right? And so, the, a lot of teachers have found that the the way that synchronous learning works is a sort of false replication of an in-person environment, in which the benefits of an in-person environment, those really can't be replicated. You can't have the same level of student interactions and a sense of community and an ability to discuss, because also the just because you know students have access to the internet, that doesn't mean they can all sort of log on and have the same uniform learning experience. There are differences in the way that students uh, experience home life. There are differences in the way that students, um, you know, experience like being online. Um, one of the things that I hadn't really thought of as someone who doesn't really have to do virtual learning and has never had to do it is that some people aren't comfortable turning on their cameras while they're at home because of, you know, the living environment and because of the the fact that you're in high school or in, or in elementary school and you know that there are people looking at you. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, every student is coming into this experience with a different set of circumstances that impact their ability to learn online. And learning online has to have complementary in-person learning to go along with it because you're never going to be able to get the the interpersonal relationships and the benefits of in-person learning. You're not going to be able to replicate those. Uh, it's sort of like Julia said, like you can never have one-on-one interactions in a 30, in a 40 minute class with 35 students because you'd only be giving each of them like a minute. And so, yeah. And so I think we've really learned that there's no replacement for in-person learning and there's no there's no way that you can have virtual learning stand on its own and maintain the same level of integrity and quality that you do in a regular school environment. When school resumed uh, in the fall, teachers and students were given the choice whether to to teach or learn uh, virtually or in person. Can you tell me how the teachers that you spoke to approached that choice and what um, I guess what they would have liked to see done instead. Yeah, so I think that one of the the primary things that impacted uh, the teachers' like abilities to make those decisions were also their own home life. So um, some teachers have you know chronic health conditions that mean that they can't you know attend an in person schooling environment when it's a risk to their health. Um, others have uh, family at home that they need to be able to take care of. Some of the teachers I spoke to have children who were attending either virtual or in-person learning. And so that decision on where to enroll their child also impacted their own decision about where they would like to teach. I think that one of the the major things that they mentioned wanting more of is greater notice, you know, advanced notice and an ability to make decisions with more clarity. Uh, One of the things Melissa mentioned to me was that 
there was just like the the information was just not coming out of of the board and of the province. The decisions were not being made with enough notice. Um, Teachers weren't really sure the size of their classrooms, uh, what they'd be teaching for some of the elementary school uh, teachers who, you know, teach sort of across the the board. They don't just teach specific subjects. They hadn't been given the details of what they'd be teaching and how many students they'd be teaching and uh, who those students would be even. Um, And even into sort of weeks into the into the school year, there was so much change in terms of students uh, choosing to go online instead of in person and vice versa, um, and changes to class sizes and things like that. And so there was just so much uncertainty in advance. Um, And so teachers had to make the decision of whether to do virtual learning or in-person learning based off of very little information, uh, which isn't exactly fair. Um, You can't you know, make, tell someone to make a decision about what their uh, professional year is going to look like, or even the, the semester is going to look like for them professionally without giving them any of the details of what the job will entail, uh, besides the basics, of course. And so I think that was one of the greatest struggles that teachers faced. And that's why the decisions were so hard to make. And something that I didn't really touch on in the in the piece, but that I also heard about a lot, even though I don't have any figures for it, is that this year, there were a lot of teachers who chose to take the year off because they just weren't given the transparency and the information in time to be able to make the right decision for themselves and their families. And so they just ended up uh, stepping aside from the profession for either the year or early retirement. A couple of the things that we've talked about so far, uh, virtual learning, obviously, but also class sizes, are issues, again, that were that existed before the pandemic. Um, so how much of what teachers have been feeling this year is purely the circumstances of dealing with COVID-19 and how much of it is exacerbated by uh, stuff that was there before the pandemic and maybe has been uh, revealed a little bit more by it. Yeah, that's that's a really good question because I think that's the heart of what the, the piece is really about is that you can't build a response to a crisis on such an unstable foundation. And I think the thing that frustrates you know, me in, in choosing to write this, but also in frustrates so many teachers and so many parents and people sort of affiliated with the edu- world of education is that it's like, this isn't the first time that people have been talking about these issues. They've been talking about them um, for for years, you know, since, since Ford came into office, they've also been talking about it for decades since the nineties. And so, yeah, all of the, all of the things that people are concerned about, whether it be, um, you know, the, the role that technology plays in the classroom and how that needs to be better implemented or the class sizes that teachers have or, you know, the, the changing nature of what teachers are supposed to be doing and the funding that is allocated to what they're supposed to be doing. Um, people have been talking about that for a really long time. And so I think what's happened now is that I think before the pandemic, there were some teachers who were experiencing the worst of it based on a number of circumstances, whether it be like which school they taught in and the impact, the changes to the budget of that school, whether it be, you know, personal changes they've seen in their classroom with regards to class size or split grades. Um, But now more and more teachers are experiencing a crisis level of, of, um, you know, unpreparedness uh, from the province and from the board. And so, yeah, I think what used to be perhaps before a less extreme experience has now just reached its most extreme form. Um, And I think the thing that, you know, frustrates teachers the most is that if someone had listened to them, if the right, if the people in power and the people who, you know, were in the right place to be able to make those 
authoritative decisions had listened earlier and had put into place changes earlier to mitigate the harm uh, and and you know change the course of the direction that education in Ontario is headed right now then there wouldn't have been this level of crisis now it's not like this this version of what's happened with covid and with the Ontario education system and with Toronto specifically this isn't the inevitable version. This is the version that is the result of not listening to teachers, not listening to educators. Um, And I think that if that change had been made earlier, then we would definitely be seeing a less extreme version of the crisis. We've already got some teachers taking a year off. uh, And as you mentioned, some walking away from the profession, or at least from, from public schools. COVID will end at some point, hopefully this year with a readily available vaccine. What's the trajectory, meanwhile, uh, for the Ontario public school system, given, you know, the the teachers you've talked to, the work that you've done, the reporting you've seen? I think that the th- one of the things that will make the greatest impact um, post-COVID is the willingness of the Ontario government and, um, and the authorities who decide how education is going to look in the province, um, the willingness that they have to learn from their mistakes and to admit that they were mistakes at all. Um, I think that so far people are a little pessimistic about what the future is going to look like because of the unwillingness of um, you know, the education minister and the province more broadly to acknowledge the places that they've failed to meet the the needs of the crisis. And when I asked this question to, to the people that I spoke to about, oh, are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling pessimistic? One of the senses that I got was that a lot of them said that the thing that makes them optimistic is that their students are showing greater and greater understandings of what justice looks like and the teachers um, and the teachers, you know, the, the teachers, social surroundings, their families, their, you know, former students, people who have lived through 97 and through the impacts of Bill 160 when it first originated, those people are now, you know, in positions of, of being able to influence or help make decisions. And so there's a hope that greater institutional memory, a greater understanding of, of the impact of austerity on education will mean that as um, as we progress, you know, people who have lived through the impacts of this will be able to help push for, you know, a greater sensitivity towards the needs of the education world, greater budgeting, a return to funding the sort of peripheries of education that aren't seen as necessary under this administration. But I think also what people are realizing more and more, and something that um, I did a little bit of data analysis on for the piece was that private schooling is becoming something that people invest more and more in. And there's a sense that, you know, a lot of a lot of people a lot of parents especially feel like the the public school system can't cut it anymore and that is not something that is inherent to the public school system the system isn't broken because it's public school it's broken because people aren't paying enough attention to it and aren't giving it the funding that it has needed for a very long time now and so the pessimism comes from the worry that those needs will not be met under this administration, under perhaps even under future administrations, because it's not um, 
it's not socially welcome to spend more money on public infrastructure because of, you know, the the, the way that we perceive the economy and the, the priorities in terms of funding. And there are so many funding cuts and losses in across various sectors, including, of course, healthcare, which has proven to be one of the most damaging during COVID, that people, it's, it's not really welcome to see more money being spent, but that's really what needs to happen is more money needs to be spent. And so there's a fear that it's not a politically sexy enough issue for um, politicians to go out on a limb and choose to do it. But there is optimism in the sense that I think teachers know that they are going to be fighting for it, that, you know, people who are allied to teachers, like parents and students are going to be fighting for it, and that there's always the hope that things can get better because students are displaying a greater and greater sense of understanding and justice as to what is happening and how they can work to fix it. Thank you so much, Inori. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Inori Roy is a freelance investigative journalist, and this story was for The Local. That was The Big Story. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us at thebigstoryfpn on Twitter. You can also email us, thebigstorypodcast, that's all one word and all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. You can find us in your favorite podcast player, every single one of them. If you find one and we're not on it, tell us so we can get there. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.